text for this closing message comes from Philippians chapter 3 and it's verse 20. But I would like to read it to you with at least a little part of its setting. So we'll begin our reading, please, in verse 17 of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now, I'd like to just read a text, please, from Hebrews chapter 11 to lay alongside that, please. Hebrews 11. And verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verse 13. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But, as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. There is a, a quite well-known strip cartoon, um, in fact there's several versions of it, that humorously sets out to depict what happens when a client uh, gives a description to an architect of something they want done and then what happens at the end of that, what they actually get. So there's a whole series of these in the first boxes, as the client described it. And the second one is as the architect visualized it. And the third one is as the engineer designed it. And then there's another one, how the health and safety people demanded it. And then as the, another one, as the installer installed it. And finally, at the end of this, you get what the client actually wanted. And it's completely different to any of these boxes. It, it's humorously depicting the dilemma of something that exists in the 
mind of one person as having been conceived in that mind, but how that's perceived in the minds of others. Um, what makes diagrams very useful is that it, diagrams seek to overcome that. A diagram is a drawing that helps to make something understandable, which is perhaps not as understandable without a drawing. Strong statements can be good in themselves, but sometimes we're left wondering, what does it actually look like in practice? I need to be able to see it. Now, that's the reason we've read from Hebrews 11, because it seems to me that Abraham is our living diagram of the strong statement that Paul makes in Philippians 3 concerning our citizenship. Abraham shows us what that looks like. So we'll come to Abraham in a little bit. But first of all, please, I'd like to um, have a, a look at our, our passage that we've read in Philippians 3. There's an inherent danger, of course, in plucking a text out of its context. Verse 20 is really what it's centered around, this closing message. But th there's an inherent danger in plucking a text out of its context the very least of which is that we'll miss something of its import. So let's have a look at uh, these verses. Just scan through them. There'll be much more than we've time to comment on this evening. First is Paul's love and concern for those that he writes to. It's very evident, isn't it? And chief in that concern is for their spiritual well-being. Above the physical, Paul to Paul, the, the most important thing is their spiritual well-being. That's what mattered most. And then he encourages them to imitate his own lifestyle. I was interested in Graham's defense of Paul earlier on, and I'm going to defend him again. He's not difficult to defend, is he? Um, this isn't a matter of our arrogance. This isn't Paul putting himself on a pedestal. What he says here needs to be understood in the light of 1 Corinthians 11 and 1. I'll leave you to check that out for yourselves. It's easy to remember it's all ones. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, um, where Paul is saying that the ultimate uh, example, the supreme example is Christ himself. That's whom Paul was, was basing his lifestyle upon. And he's calling others to join him in that. Notice the us of verse 17. It's not Paul alone. Timothy and Epaphroditus would have been notable names in the minds of the Philippians to whom he was writing, but there were others. And Paul is saying, look, come alongside us, join us, walk with us in this matter of imitating Christ. Christ is the goal, not Paul. The, the call that he was issuing to them, this invitation was to be heavenly minded. And to be heavenly minded means that we must oppose worldly mindedness. Uh, the one thing necessitates the other. And then um, he refers to those whose walk, whose manner of life is very different to his. Lives that were wholly and utterly inconsistent with the discipleship of Jesus Christ. And they were a danger to others because bad company corrupts good morals, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15. These people were a menace because they drew other people after them in the way in which they lived. I used to think that Paul's weeping was for them. 
but I've wondered more lately whether Paul was weeping for those who were caught up in their heresy and drawn to worldliness through the example of other people. And then notice that in this part here, he uses very, very strong language. He calls them enemies of the cross. What a stark difference between being an enemy of the cross and those things that Graham's been bringing before us, which surely would render us as friends of the cross. Friends of the cross are people who have caught the spirit of the cross, which is the spirit of self-denial. Enemies of the cross are those who are utterly opposed to that. And instead of self-denial, it's, um, it's self-indulgence that rules their lives. Friends of the cross do not love the world. It's been crucified to them and them to it, as Graham's been reminding us. Enemies of the cross love the world and they've set their minds on earthly things. Friends of the cross glory in the cross. Enemies of the cross glory in the things that are shameful. And then having set all that out, Paul then comes to our text of verse 20. And we catch something in its setting of its monumental status. And in saying that, I'm reminded of the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, when you remember um, Nebuchadnezzar had set up his great image and he commanded everybody that when they heard the great cacophony of sound, they were to bow down and worship the image that spoke of his, his excellency, the emperor. And you remember Daniel chapter three, it's a, it's a gripping picture. There were three men that didn't bow down. I, I visualize it as all these bowed backs and people with their heads touching the earth and uh, Nebuchadnezzar's 60 cubit high monument. I want to say to you that nothing stood taller that day than Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. These young princes of Judah stood tall on the plains of Dura because they refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. This monumental text that stands out as these three men stood out in Paul's writing to the Philippians tells us that we cannot submit to worldliness, to materialism, to self-indulgent lust, to um, gluttony and licentiousness, to surrender to such things, he says, would render you an enemy of the cross of Christ. So for those that Paul is longing after here in the Church of God in Philippi, this is a monument that tells them to whom and where they belong and how that sense of belonging should affect their conduct. Let's think about that for a few moments. I dare say that sometimes, I don't say all of us here today, but I know in my life this is true. I've not spent long enough thinking and appreciating um, the effects of, of the new birth to where and to whom I belong. I think I've probably mentioned it before that I remember from childhood memories running down the garden path uh, forraying out, sallying out on some childhood mission with the words of my mother ringing out after me, remember whose you are, it's good advice. 
And here Paul is saying that here is something that we need to grasp again, where we belong and to whom we belong. Um, I was speaking to somebody recently who was telling me that uh, when he was born, there must have been a lot of his relatives standing around because they all wanted a slice of the cake and they wanted their names included in his name. So you ended up with a name that was as long as your arm. I asked him if he had to have an extension to his birth certificate. You know, however important a name, however long a name is on earth, your name and mine are registered in heaven's registry. Our names are written in heaven. That's by virtue of the new birth. John tells us that we've been born from above. It's a spiritual, heavenly thing. And, and that, that's where we begin in this matter of, of Paul's monument. So heaven is our na native land. It's our homeland. It's our fatherland. And um, you remember the old bluegrass song. Maybe you don't, but I do. And those of you who do know it, you'll be singing it now for the rest of the evening with its refrain, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That's how we should feel. When we grasp the reality of our heavenly birth, where we belong, where our names are registered, our birth certificate, and by virtue of that, to whom we belong, then it's impossible to feel at home in this world. The, the two things are not compatible. But it's not just um, about our, um, our, our birth, it's about our conduct. All of that has an inevitable effect. The way we look, the way we talk, I, I remember being with Sydney Anderson in Northern Ireland um, years ago, we were in a shop and we overheard somebody speaking, a lady, and Sydney turned to me and he said, she's from County Monaghan. Um, she didn't say that she was, Sydney didn't know her, but it was just by the inflection of her speech. And he knew precisely where she came from. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people could say the same of us and our relationship with Christ by the way in which we talk, by the way in which we walk, the way in which we look, that there's something of Christ. Our heavenly birth must have an inevitability as far as uh, our witness is concerned. But it's more than that, as we were saying, it's laws that govern our behavior, uh, heavenly values, heavenly standards are the things that govern us. Our citizenship begins with the new birth, but it's to be seen in our subjection to the laws of the kingdom of God, the commandments of Christ. All of which has its own inevitable outcome. It renders us strangers, sojourners, and pilgrims on the earth. And we're going to take a look at Abraham to see how that's exemplified for us in the old uh, pilgrim's life, as we've read in Hebrews chapter 11. So we come to Hebrews 11, our reading in it. Our Kent Hughes says of Abraham that his life was one of dissonance. That made me think, because dissonance means lack of harmony. It's the violin that's not tuned in with the others. You know, it's the one that's sounding out of tune. doesn't quite fit in. And that was Abraham's life. When I got to think about it, I thought our Kent Hughes was right. Abraham didn't quite fit in to Canaan. 
you've no doubt seen the illustration of the ichthus fish swimming in the opposite direction to all the other little fish and all the fish are going this way and there's one little ichthus fish and he's swimming in the opposite direction. That's dissonance. It's not quite fitting in. Abraham's worldview was in collision with the views that surrounded him. It was one of dissonance. Polytheistic uh, paganism surrounded Abraham. He was monotheistic in his outlook. Standards of behavior were based upon gods that men had made. That surrounded the culture in which Abraham walked. But in Abraham's life, it was rooted and grounded in the very character of God. So it was one of dissonance. He didn't fit in. And there's a lesson in that for us that I want to pass on. We are to live in dissonance with the unbelieving world around us. There's something about us that just simply doesn't fit in. And if it begins to look as if it does, brothers and sisters, there's something wrong. R. Kent Hughes again, he says, it's not that we're to live with an anti-cultural uh, mindset, but we live with a counter-cultural mindset. We're to show the better way. Have a look at this with me. And I, David, this is one I should have put on the screen if I was clever enough. But First Peter, if you've got your Bible there, First Peter 2, turn over quickly to that. First Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. That's the counterculture. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of um, visitation. There's an arresting example of that in Genesis chapter 23. You remember that Abraham was uh, negotiating with the sons of Heth for what some people have pointed out was the only one piece of real estate that he ever owned in the land that God promised him. It was the cave of Machpelah in which he buried Sarah. And he's negotiating with the sons of Heth and he says to them, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. And you remember their response. They said to him, you're as a mighty prince among us. That's, that's the counterculture. Abraham had been displaying the excellent. He'd been showing them the better way. And that is how you and I are to live in the world. To show them what's excellent. So in all our dealings with the world, and, and we have to have dealings with the world around us, we've not been called to live a monastic life out of it, but we move among those who are unbelievers, living by different standards. But it's not simply a life of abstinence. It's one that shows excellence, shows the better way. Let's have a look at these words that the writer of the Hebrews uses, because he uses three different words here to describe Abraham, and Abraham uses two different words to describe himself in Hebrew in the Old Testament. Strangers, sojourners, and pilgrims, most English versions have them. The word translated strangers or foreigners, um, that defines somebody who's not only at dissonance in the world around them, but 
can feel the negative effect of that. The world distrusts uh, strangers. It, it's suspicious of strangers so that it can be quite hard living in a world. And we need to learn that and just accept it. We must need to learn to accept it, I should say. John 15, the Lord tells us to not to be surprised if the world hates us. He says, it hated me. So uh, the world will hate us. There's that aspect of our living which will draw uh, discomfort at the very least from the world around us. And then Abraham's described as a sojourner, and that word means a resident foreigner, foreign, but nevertheless living in the world around him. And we do live here, don't we? But we're like the people of God in Babylon. We don't really belong in whatever respect they might afford to us. And sometimes they do. And they certainly did to some of the people of God who lived in Babylon. Daniel was a notable example of that. But whatever respect the world affords to us, we remain people who really don't belong in this world. And I, I, I give you Daniel's open window as a witness to that. Here's this man who was deeply respected and honored in the reign of Darius. But look at his open window. It's open towards Jerusalem. Daniel's still a man at dissonance in Babylon. His heart and his life was elsewhere. And then finally, pilgrims uh, are described here. And that's the emphasis on the temporary nature of our stay. We're moving through. The saying that I'm about to give you has been attributed to the Lord Jesus. I don't know anything about that. It's not in the in the scriptures, but I give it to you for its, um, its worth. It, it's this, the world is a bridge. The wise pass over it, but they will not build a house upon it. The world is a bridge. The wise pass over it, but they will not build a house upon it. That's how we're to live in the world as pilgrims. We necessarily pass through it and we pass over it like a bridge, but it's not our homeland. It's not our native land. And it's not for us to build things of permanence here. There's, um, there's a good example of this in numbers. If you're reading through the golden bells and pomegranates readings at the moment, you'll be You'll have come through the book of Numbers nearing the end now. But in chapter 22, we read that Israel camped in the plains of Moab. I think it was Acacia Grove. It sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds like a suburb of Surbiton. I think it was a fairly nice place to camp. And it says in 22 verse 1 of Numbers, they camped there. That's the nomadic people. And they pitched their tents there. But in chapter 25, a few chapters later, it says that they remained there. It's a different word, of course. And it's the word that means that they felt settled there. And they never should have felt settled in the plains of Moab. And those of you who know the outcome of Numbers 25 will know that it was an absolute disaster that they felt settled there. So same for us, brothers, sisters. We're not to feel settled in this world. It's an unsettling place, and that's fine. It's the way it is, because our nativity our native land, our fatherland, our homeland is not here, it's elsewhere. Our citizenship is in heaven, and Abraham shows us what that's like. We're passing through. I, um, I, I grew up in Crowborough in Sussex in the south of England, and 
my Bible class teacher was a lovely Christian gentleman by the name of Jesse Taylor. When Jesse died, um, one of the hymns that was sung at his funeral um, was 418 in the PHSS, one of James Montgomery's wonderful hymns, Forever with the Lord. And you may remember that twice in it, it has this line, and nightly pitch our moving tent a day's march nearer home. Isn't that good? And nightly pitch our moving tent a day's march nearer home. I remember talking with Lily, Jesse's widow, after the funeral, and she said about that hymn, and she said it was a mistake, Phil. It, it wasn't the hymn that we actually chose through some misunderstanding. Some other hymn had been laid aside and this one had been put in. But then we sat and talked about the, the appropriateness of that for Jesse's funeral. What a wonderful hymn. But it marked his life. It marked Abraham's life. It should mark our lives. We're pilgrims. We're passing through. Nightly pitch our moving tent. A day's march nearer home. Note another thing about these people who read in Hebrews, these patriarchs in Hebrews 11, it's that they never looked back. It was a signal failure of the tribes of Israel in the times of the Exodus that they often looked back. They wanted to go back to Egypt, but their pilgrim fathers didn't do that. They didn't look back. They had opportunity, the writer says, but they didn't, they didn't go back. They were looking forward, looking for something better. They say that in flying, that's in an aeroplane flying, there's a point reached which is called the point of no return. The fuel measurement is such that there's not enough to go back. So the only option is to go forward. It's good in our Christian life to reach the point of no return and to say no interest uh, of going back. We just go forward. And then it says they looked for a city and it's described in uh, the earlier verse, as the city which has foundations. Um, I like that. It's the city. The definite article sometimes just arrests us, doesn't it? And here it is. The, he looked for the city which has foundations. That means that other cities don't. It was the only one that did. You know, every, there's never been a city that's been built by men that will not crumble into dust and go, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah will ultimately happen to every city on earth. They'll be burned out. But Abraham had his eyes fixed on the city, the city which has foundations. Its designer and builder is God, and the word used there means that God did the work of building. Isn't that good? He didn't, he didn't subcontract it, didn't contract it at all. He did it himself. The Lord Jesus says, you, you know, of course, in wonderfully John 14, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. As if he hasn't done enough. He's still working. He's the builder of the new Jerusalem, I think. And it's God's city. It's been built by God's hand. It has foundations and it will never, ever be destroyed. Now, one last thing, and uh, this is what connects our two readings together, and it'll take us back into Philippians chapter 3. Hebrews 11 and 13 says that these people had seen something that was of such attractiveness to them that they welcomed what they saw and just longed for their moving, moving towards it. And Philippians chapter 3, of course, um, is the great text that we 
we're trying to draw attention to our citizenship is in heaven from which here it is from which also we eagerly wait for a savior for the lord jesus christ our savior beloved that's living in eager anticipation i don't know whether it was andrew boner himself i've often said it was but i read recently i think he was quoting someone else that he'd met but whether it was andrew boner or someone it doesn't matter he spoke about drawing the curtains at night and saying perhaps the night lord and then going to sleep and waking up in the morning and the lord hadn't returned or taken him home so he opened the curtains in the morning and he said perhaps today lord that's living in in constant eager anticipation of the the savior who's coming to take us home in the american civil war there was a song that was adopted uh, didn't begin with the soldiers of that war but it was adopted from a previous time that i think originated with a, a negro um slave who'd been freed and was longing strangely for the plantations of his youth and it has a repeated line in it and you'll probably know this from the dixieland song that's associated with the confederate army um, look away look away look away dixieland well my word to you all and to myself this evening is to look away <coughs> look away from the world look away from all that it holds look away from our past and look away to the future This world <clears throat> has nothing that it can offer us to compare with what we have in Christ. Lot lifted up his eyes and he beheld the plains of the Jordan and he went down to the cities there <coughs> that were burned up. We say again, every city is going to ultimately endure the same, experience the same, I should say. They're not endure, they'll be destroyed. You know, in that same passage, Genesis chapter 13, after Lot has departed, and we know the sad result of that, God turns to Abraham, the lonely man up on the escarpment, but he's not lonely, is he? He's in the company of God. And the Lord says to him, Abraham, lift up your eyes and look northward and southward and eastward and westward. And he reiterates some of the words of the great Abrahamic covenant that he was making with him. Lift up your eyes. I say to you, brothers and sisters, look away, look away, look away.